Hey everybody, uh, it is Jake here. I, uh, welcome to Praise Dionysus. Praise him. Uh, so this week I'm going to be talking to you about Theatreworks' production of Medea Out of the Mouths of Babes and also Wesley College's production of Rent. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming along. I think we're going to have a cool time. Hey, uh, yeah, hey, so welcome. Um, so first off, um, elephant not in the room, uh, uh, James is not here. That that lack of a high-pitched squeal uh, that you're not hearing, that, that is the absence of James. He... As I, as I yeah as I said last week he got too cocky with his certainty that he'd be here and and look at the mess he's in now so if you're keeping track of how often I am correct you can go and put a a little little line on that prison wall that you've got um yeah thank you so much for coming so it's, it's just gonna be another another one of these episodes where it is me um, going crazy in slow motion in your ears so thank you for for, for braving it with me um so I think I'll oh as, as far as how James is he's Currently fine. It's just um, it, on the the day that we were planning to record this episode, he <laughs> had what he self-diagnosed as being alcohol poisoning. Um, it then, of course, ended up not being that. Uh, but 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 I don't know. This <laughs> this is how things have eventuated, which I'm glad about. I can't stand him, and it means that we get to have this one-on-one time together. Um, I hope I hope that that you're having a nice day wherever you are. Um, Anyway, so I'll tell you about my goddamn week. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I suppose something that sticks out that I suppose I will fixate on is I went and saw, um, as you know, Connor Dariol and William Boyd. Uh, Connor, of course, having hosted the show with me a couple of weeks back now. Uh, wonderful Connor. So he and Will um, run Smelling Good Productions together. And they had a double bill on at the Butterfly Club um, a few days ago. So it was like a one-night event where they had sort of half an hour each and they performed a bunch of developing stand-up material, like sketch stuff for us. And it was a really great time. I went with my pal Johnny. Uh, Johnny's great. <laughs> and British. So so that that's a vivid enough portrait, I think, that I've drawn of Johnny for you. And yeah, so went there and they were both super-duper impressive. Um, after the show ended... Uh, spent some time lingering, went out in the street, um, and then Will made me aware of something that is, you know, a continuing to bubble and unfold thing that's occurring in the Melbourne theatre scene at the moment. Uh, and so I, this is obviously not a, <laughs> a news podcast. That's not how I would describe it. But if we were to have a news segment, this is the headline that I'd be leading with, with this week. Um, so, imagine that there's like a, you know, a graphic of a spinning world and some very cold metallophone music underneath some news graphics. And now it's me at a desk. And so, Shane Crawford got cast as the Pharaoh in the upcoming production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And people are upset about it. <laughs> um, and I don't mean—I don't mean to use a tone that makes it sound like I don't care that people are upset. They're absolutely—they're upset, and they have justifiable cause to be so. Um, I—I I for one, so I found this out. Like Will told me this with his mouth while we were standing on Swanston Street, and um, and he sort of like ran me through uh, <laughs> the sort of the louder opinions and the more outraged opinions as. Yeah, as the internet likes to do itself. Um, and uh, yeah, and I th- th- think the, th- the thing that kept 
coming up in my mind, I suppose. But so of course there's the side of things where it's like, yes, it'd be fantastic if, especially like main stage theater productions, um, which this of course would be being at the Regent Theater. It's a huge hefty production of this musical. Uh, it'd be great if the industry that we were in were more of a meritocracy. Uh, it'd be, that'd be terrific. <laughs> Let me just say that very pedestrian thing first and loudly. Um, and it'd be incredible if people could just train a bunch, be super talented and earn the acclaim and respect and roles that they should be afforded if if that's all we were basing things off. But I, I and I heard myself resenting the opinions that I was expressing to Will and to you now, I suppose, but I've had a couple of days for them to continue continue to roll around in my head. And of course, we're all capable of having more than an opinion at the, at the one time and for things to be a bit nuanced. So I'm just going to go ahead and cancel myself, I guess. <laughs> um, and please let me know what you think um, and, and if I'm being outrageously callous or something. Um, but I guess I don't have that big a problem, personally speaking, and this is coming from a person who has no desire to be a huge musical theatre superstar. Um, I don't super have a problem with Shane Crawford playing the Pharaoh in a Melbourne production of of Joseph. Uh, and and um, and this is not this is not a hyper intellectual, uncommon opinion to have. I'd say maybe it's one of the least popular opinions to have. But I think casting him in this show is smart for a bunch of reasons. Of course, I think stunt casting has for a while now proven itself to be a really effective way of getting people to come to the theatre. And I think part of what keeps me tethered to this opinion on this issue, I guess, this this specific Crawford issue, is the thought of... And Will said this when he was telling it to me. He was like, part of what had excited him about the online conversation that he was witnessing as this news kind of broke of Shane Crawford's casting was the fact that even the first article that I found on the internet to find out information about this occurrence was on, like, the Fox Sports website. <laughs> Which, it, it, I have definitely not been on that website more than 10 times in my life. And it excited me that I was on a sports website reading about a musical theatre decision. <laughs> um, and yeah, and this is kind of what Will was talking about. And it's, and it's the thoughts that sort of like have been making me kind of like smile and ponder the most since hearing about this news. Is the, the part of it is the thought of like stunt casting in essence, of course, throwing someone into a show that you think will just attract people who want to come and see this person do a thing. And it's a thing that is part of the reason that Chicago has the longevity that it's had in places like Broadway, um, where you can just sort of cycle through an at least moderately talented person to play Roxy or Velma or, you know, Billy Flynn, and it will work and attract a fresh audience of people that maybe saw Chicago last week, but with a different cast member or something, you know, like that's, that's, that's an element of it in essence. And it's like, and seeing a news article on a Fox Sports website that was talking about the decisions of people involved with Melbourne theatre um, just made me excited because it was like, it could be the reason that someone goes to the theatre for the first time. Um, it could be the reason that someone sees Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat instead of doesn't see it, you know? And I think about, I think about all the people that I know in the arts now whose first real moment of falling in love with the performing arts was just because their parents took them to shows when they were younger. And I don't know, you can see where I'm going at this. It's just like, and it's like people that are going to a musical just because they like Shane Crawford. There's every likelihood that those people as adults perhaps 
do not make theatre very much a part of their life. This may be the first show that they're going to, and it will therefore maybe be the first time that they take their child to see the show as well. And it's a chance for all of those people to be exposed to the performing arts and to a musical and to quite a goofy musical, you know? And it, it, it's it, and it's like a popular one. It's one of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's, you know, better known ones. Um, so there's there's a good chance of them kind of having a good time there. And if Shane Crawford is the, the you know, the crack in the door through which they can enter into this, you know, galaxy of musical theatre, that's really exciting. I just think it's nice that, like, we don't have that many main stages in this country, you know, and for one of them to be occupied by something that's kind of, like, off-kilter and bizarre. And, like, it as a musical is kind of peculiar in the way that the, the music genre isn't super-duper consistent, um... And the way that it draws on the Bible, but without ever really making like a convincing case for the like I don't know, the the merit of the Old Testament, I suppose. <laughs> like it's 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 an exciting odd experience. Um, and yeah, I just think if it gets more people to go to the theater, that's something. And of course, it, and it's also the thing too of like it'd be great for this to just be a cast full of Egyptian performers, you know, because of course it's set in Egypt. It'd be great for that sort of representation to be a thing that was prioritized as well. Um, and they're just, of course, two opinions that I super duper uphold. I guess uphold. Maybe that's wrong. They just occupy my mind at the same time, um, which is a thing that we can do. Um, yeah, I don't know. His casting is controversial, but exciting. And even the controversy is, controversy is exciting, you know, because even if this just eventuates in everyone deciding, no, you're, you're right, actually, this is offensive. This is offensive to people of colour. This is offensive to people who have trained for years and years to be good enough to play the Pharaoh. People who have, may have dreamt their whole lives of getting to sing Stone the Crows at the Regent Theatre. <laughs> um, yeah, if they then announce, no, you know what, we, we made a mistake and we need to get Shane out and we need to get Hugh Sheridan in or something. You know, if that's a choice that they make, that's a choice that they make. But it's got people talking about theatre that otherwise wouldn't be talking about the theatre. And I think that's just always a good thing because, I don't know, not that it's on the brink of dying out, but it's like, I was talking to someone this morning. I just met this, I don't know, this funky theatre maker named Luke, who I didn't know and now I know and I'm glad I know him. And we were talking about a bunch of stuff and one of them being um we were comparing what were we comparing comparing sort of the COVID experience and the lockdown experience of being artists and being theater makers through the time through that time and being like the <laughs> the the miserable experience of sort of like being told like being literally informed of our work being that of non-essential workers um and then, I don't know, it was almost like a Facebook meme for a while, wasn't it? Of it being like, oh, you call artists non-essential, but then you're going to spend all of lockdown watching Netflix. You know, like that, <laughs> that, that nonsense being encapsulated, you know, that, that encapsulating kind of like what I'm getting at in terms of like the, that lockdown experience informing us and illuminating in the, the, this, uh, the way it illuminated societal priority, um, and, and that's kind of, and that was part of what was in this article that I was reading on Fox Sports was, was someone talking about how this decision to put Shane Crawford in this musical is just another instance of people being like, well, the sports matter more than the arts. Um, but it's like, and, and I get that. And, and the, the lockdown experience was, it, it made it feel that way because I don't know, it feels a little while ago now, but it's like watching the sports come back before theatre was allowed to, like, that was a pretty miserable moment. Um and in a way, talking to Luke, it was like we almost compared it to the plebiscite 
in terms of like it being one of those real cultural moments of like, oh, like you, you have those fears that you have those fears that that is what society thinks, but you never have the concrete proof. And then things like theaters being shut, but the MCG being open or running a referendum to find out that less than 70% of people want you to be able to get married. It's like, um, um, you know, it's, it's those moments. So, um, (laughs) so to think that the sports and the arts are colliding in this way, I think is just exciting because the more that they interact, the more that there will be like flow between the two worlds and I think that it's it's not going to be like a long lasting relationship, but it, it's one that could see some fans trickle one way or the other or something, you know? And I think Shane Crawford's a force for good, I think. You know, I certainly come from a biased place of having found him to be that most handsome man in the world when I was a fair bit younger. I feel like a 14-year-old Jake was... Yeah, a big fan of his for not not athletic reasons. His 2004 documentary, am I guessing that it came out in 2004? I'm going to say 2004 with a confidence that I haven't earned with any sort of recent research. But he had this documentary that came out that I remember find, finding really interesting for reasons beyond his face. I just remember finding it a really interesting glimpse into his peculiar existence. Um, but yeah, but it's, and it's also too, it's like, and not to be too rigorously on the unpopular side of this conversation, but it's also like, we are staging a British musical about the Bible. And I only bring that up in the sense of like, like what are we staging and what is the point of it? Um, In terms of like, you can drill down into, and we need to do so. And we are doing to an extent in terms of like this type of conversation surrounding what we're prioritizing and what we're plonking on our stages. What are the conversations we're having? Are we having the same ones over and over again? And are we having conversations that we keep having and then convincing ourselves that we've come out the other side of a debate and then in action, we see no change actually happening? For an example that comes into my gay head is the one about gay people playing gay people in, in like media. And we keep having that conversation every time it pops up. And then we just, I don't know, we either get bored of it or pretend we got to a resolution. And then, you know, then Colin Firth is playing a homosexual again. And it's like, okay, so nothing has changed. So I, I don't know. And for some reason it feels pertinent to be like, why are we staging an Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice musical on stage in Melbourne you know, and I think part of the answer, because I'm not saying that we shouldn't be staging it, but I think part of the answer is the fact of like, it's a popular musical that will get people to spend money on the arts and that might mean more arts. And if putting Shane Crawford in, <laughs> if, it get, if getting him to play the Pharaoh means more people will see a show and that might cause more people to want to see more shows and to become artists and to make interesting art, they might make the sort of art that we deserve to be seeing. I don't know, that's... That's what I think about that, I suppose. So please let me know <laughs> everything that was wrong with what I said. Please let me know what you think. Um, anyway, yeah. I, I So I'm going to give... <laughs> I'm going to give my week... I'm going to give it 12 stars because from memory, that is how many brothers Joseph had. Um, oh, and let's also not forget that a somewhat recent production of Joseph and the Dreamcoat, etc. was cast by a television competition. So I think <laughs> I think the sanctity of the casting process um, may have been somewhat tainted for a little while, I think. And as disheartening as it is, I think, I don't know, maybe it's not, maybe it's not the demon that maybe we think it is sometimes. I don't know. 
Anyway, let's <laughs> let's talk about some theatre. Thanks for coming along and thanks for listening. Oh my god, what a patient saint you must be. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about some theatre. Okay, hi everyone. Hi. So I went to see Medea out of the mouths of babes, uh, a, which is an adaptation of Euripides' Medea, um, which which I'm sure you're familiar with. If you aren't, it's essentially a woman finds out that her husband, this like soldier guy named Jason, has been cheating on her um, and has like left her and she is furious. And then famously in an act of revenge, then goes about killing her children, (laughs) the children that she had with her unfaithful husband. Sorry to spoil an ancient text for you. Uh, So yeah, so this adaptation was done from... From me piecing together the things that the different people have said about what the show is, is it's like imagining the story from the, like through the eyes and perspectives of the children that get murdered at the end and through the formulation of the text and the show, the the true input of real life children was incorporated into the methodology. There were no children physically on stage, um, but they were part of the process. That is my little tidbit for you to uh, keep in your little head. (laughs) Um, yeah. Anyway, so let me paint you a picture. Uh, (laughs) is it an interesting picture? We'll find out together. So I went to St. Kilda to Theatre Works to see this adaptation of Medea. I get there. It's a matinee because I'm a slut for a matinee. I don't know why. I just enjoy them. I get there and, and uh, I walk in and there's a hustle and a bustle. Um, and it's a uniformed hustle and bustle because there are just school students galore. I go up to, so full disclosure, I'm pally with the director, Stephen Mitchell Wright, and the assistant director, Belle Hansen. Um, I get to Theatre Works. Stephen is, <laughs> while being the director and one of the writers of the show, is also the barista in the cafe at Theatre Works at the time, which I love independent theatre. <laughs> it was a, a very sweet thing to see. We talk and he lets me know that I am the only person coming to the show at the matinee, to the sold out matinee. <laughs> I'm the only person there that is an adult that has nothing to do with a school. So, <laughs> so I have a cyclone of feelings, many of them being anxiety, because, you know, being around <laughs> a bunch of uniformed high school students, I don't know if it happens to all of us. But certainly to the best of us, we are just ready to be bullied. (laughs) So so I put on my most convincing cool adult face and waited for the doors to open. Um, But yeah, no, headed inside for this, for the, oh, I ran into my pal, Jono, who it's it's fair if you don't know who he is, but he did my undergrad with me. And it was nice to briefly talk to him because he's uh, currently a high school teacher at a high school. That high school recently won an award for their production of Mamma Mia. So, wish I'd seen it. I, an award-winning production of a high school Mamma Mia. Yeah, I know. That does sound like the sort of thing that I would need to see. The only thing better than that would be if they had staged the sequel, which, as we all know, is a better, more impressive, more engaging, much more rewatchable movie. Anyway, <laughs> so, I get this news, I go inside, and, oh, and part of, like, you need to imagine, if you're picturing this with me, which I which I hope you are, because <laughs> this, if anything, is, is a radio play. I need you to picture me going into this theatre already kind of like in this fog of like hearing very diligent theatre studies teachers instructing their students on how to interpret and engage with the show that we're about to see. And there was this very charming moment where this like, you know, theatre studies teacher was talking to this little, you know, squadron of young gentlemen who, it's so confusing to me that we 
dress up school students in like formal wear, like especially the guys. I just find that so strange. And I get that part of it is the whole idea of like the curriculum of like, you know, Western society in high schools largely being about preparing people for the workforce. But it's a little bit on the nose to have them wearing blazers every day, I think. Anyway, so yeah, and she's just, you know, like crouching and talking to these young men about that they should be keeping an eye on particular elements of stagecraft and dramaturgy. You need to imagine that that is kind of like an overhanging smog in this entire experience. Um, As I described this show to you and my experience of it, please picture me surrounded entirely by an ocean of different school uniforms and whispers about lighting states. Okay. (laughs) Um, So we go inside. I sit in a position that makes me feel least out of place, which achieves none of what I intended to do. Um, And then the show starts. And yeah, and then... So I'll give you like the vibe of what the show was like. Um, So it was kind of like... How have I... I've spoken to a couple of people about it and how have I kind of like described it? I suppose it's like... My entry point to talking to you about this will be through what I was in the mood for. And as I'm sure you find as well when you see shows, I don't know to what extent, and I, I this certainly varies with, with every theatrical experience, at least with me. Like you, you, I don't know how aware you are of what you're in the mood for when you go to a piece of theatre, whether or not you kind of always have the same thing that you're looking for or the same style that you're looking for or whether or not it's different depending on what day it is for you. I think I'm definitely a what day is it for me kind of guy. And I didn't know until kind of the show began what I wanted to experience theatrically. Maybe if I hadn't even been in a theatre, what sort of day I wanted to be having? (laughs) And how much of that was influenced by feeling like I was in year 11 again? Uh, but I, I was in the mood for some hard-hitting naturalistic drama. And that's on me. That's my fault. And it's not because of anything that the marketing told me about the show. Um, it, w- it was just where my soul was at. And that is not what was being offered. That is not a shortcoming of the show. That is just <laughs> a fact of the matter. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so it then begins to be uh, like a super presentational, rather postmodern, um, hyper-stylized, very sort of like shiny, well-lit, stark, while being quite colourful. Is that an antonym of stark? Do I not know what stark is? In my mind, stark means, (laughs) like, bathed in the glow of a dairy section, is, is what stark means to me. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, so to, to give you, like, what I guess is kind of, like, something that can kind of, like, exemplify the vibe is the opening sequence is like a kind of like a parody of a news show that is reporting back on the events of Medea having murdered her children. Um, you know, it's kind of like a, like a send up of a news thing, you know, that familiar trope of, of satirizing contemporary media, that being kind of like, not even the framing device. Cause we never really come back to it, but that kind of like setting the scene and doing the very like classical text thing of letting you know exactly what's going to happen in the story that you're about to see that very like, love a spoiler, <laughs> Shakespearean, very Greek, very like chorusy, letting you know the ins and outs of the journey we're about to go on. You know, like the original trigger warning <laughs> um, that, that, yeah, you know, which would do great, admittedly, as a thing to talk about in a VCE essay. Uh, the whole thing happened on a revolve, love a revolve. They stress me out. Having worked with one in the past, it caused a lot of stress. It was a stunning stage choice, but it made me very nervous. 
and I think I would always find revolves anxiety inducing. Uh, <laughs> but love a show when it's done on a microwave. I think it's fantastic. Uh, but it was good. It provided a lot of opportunities for, because it was like on a revolve, but they also had a wall still dividing it into two halves, you know? So it meant that while the front semicircle of this revolve was showing you something behind that wall, they could be setting up some new stunning stage moment if they wanted to. Um, so funky stagecraft element, another great inclusion in your VCE essay. Um, very postmodern. A thing about the postmodernness, I suppose, and something about the presentational decision that they made in terms of the way that people were going to be performing in the show, um, it meant that, and this kind of comes back to me coming in with the, with, with, with my appetite wet for August Age County and, and not getting that. <laughs> I got Medea out of the mouths of babes, which is fair enough. That's what was on the ticket. Um, what it meant was that because it was kind of like stylized in such a presentational way, it meant that there, and again, this isn't a fault, it's just me describing to you how the art functioned. It meant that my hunger for empathy <laughs> um, and my desire to, I guess even going further back than that, <laughs> it's going back to the expectations that I bring to Medea. And maybe it's not even expectations, maybe it's like a, I don't know what it's like. Is it like if you're about to watch a play or see a movie or something and it's set in like, I don't know, a King arthur time period and therefore you're expecting there to be dragons, but then there were no dragons. And it's like, it's no one ever promised you dragons. You were just ready for them to happen. And there were no dragons there. Um, the absence of dragons in this, I suppose, was me going in to Medea being like, oh, a thing that I love about Medea is I love watching an amazing actress be put in the position of Medea and then having to witness a woman what having to you know watch an actor decide to murder her children and that being such a tremendous effort because it's just like I feel like I've watched a lot of like panels and and you know like real life conversations with yeah I think I've I've never seen a man play Medea before or hear one talk about having played Medea um but I just like I feel like I'm certain that Fiona Shaw has played Medea before and she said some really interesting things about it. Um, I don't know if I dreamt that, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure she did. I think it was for the National Theatre, but I can't be certain. But she said some really wonderful things about her experience of playing Medea. And it's especially interesting when it's women that have children talking about the challenges of playing Medea as well. And I think for that reason, um, the, so a part of me was going in like, oh, I can't wait to watch what I believed, what I expected to be a woman play Medea. And, and to kind of get, get a peek at the way that she's going to attempt to do this, this, oh my God, this like in, inhumane act of cruelty against, uh, against some children that she had. Um, yeah. I don't, uh, but yeah, so that, that of course was not going to be a thing that was going to be, um, experienceable in the naturalistic way that my mind was inexplicably keen for, you know, because of the style that they, that they went with, um, you know, which is, I think is always, like, and I think this, again, comes back to taste as well. I think I always tend to find that with anything, regardless of how spectacular it is, anything that lacks, if it's, I don't know, if it's a, what am I saying? If it's like a character-driven thing, I think if you go presentational and surfacy with it, I think that, of course, leaves you largely with image and language um, and, you know, all those superficial things. Um which are of course remarkable, <laughs> but I think, I think, and I don't know what sort of, what sort of theater goer you are. Um, but that leaves me always again, regardless of what it is, always just a little bit hungry for the, 
the the empathy part, I guess. Because even still, even in this production, you see her witness, you, you see her kill her children. Like, you still get to witness. You still get to, you don't miss out on the good stuff. She still, of course, murders them. But it's even like with these two wonderful actors playing. So it's like the cast is Paolo Bartolome, Emily Joy, and Willow Sizer. Um, and they play a number of characters throughout the entire thing. Um, but yeah, but so, but so with these adults playing these kids, um, even beyond them being adults playing kids, um, because of the way that the whole thing's stylized, it's like, even to use them as an example, it's like, it's not as if you get to know these children and you get to see them, even with it being a show that is, uh, intended to focus on the children, you don't really get to know them as children. You get to know them kind of like as the concept of children. Like you get to see these adults really kind of delightfully, playing these like playful sweet kids um but 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 you don't for a moment forget that it's people playing children and in even in this like very haunting moment towards the end when you kind of know what's about to happen like you know that she's about to kill them and you see them both sort of one at a time emerge from the the darkness of upstage and come towards you and you know that they're about to die it, it's not as if you have a feeling of like oh no like little jenny and andrew are gonna are gonna get murdered it's it's like how sad is it that so often you hear these stories of children just like <laughs> well how often do you that they sort of come to embody just the idea of children and and the idea of children murdered by their parents <laughs> which God, which happens so often, and it's so sad. I'm, I'm happy to have that hot take on my conscience. Uh, <laughs> it sucks when children are murdered by their parents. Um, given that James is not here, I feel like I need to do some heavy lifting in his regard in terms of his tendency to single out audience members and tear them apart, <laughs> um, you know, in his honour. So in the <laughs> with that in mind, I'm, I'm going to bring up... I'm, gonna, I, I'm not as good at this as he is, so sorry if I sound vague out of fear of hurting a stranger's feelings. <laughs> there was a teacher who was sitting really close to me. He seemed like a lovely man based on the brief eye contact that we had before we both sat down. Um, there was a moment where I'm sure it was Creon. Um, one of the, the woman actors was playing Creon. <laughs> um, and he, a decision that they made, like the costumes throughout the show were really impressive and really like a lot to look at. And that was really cool. Um, uh, but a, a component of Creon's costume was him having just like a large penis inside of his loose shorts was a thing. Um, and this this male teacher that I was near to, again, a fan of him. <laughs> he seems like a great guy. Um, he was just, he was into this sight gag so thoroughly. Like it was just like, it was a laughter that he couldn't stop um, as much as he seemed to not even be trying to, it was, he was just super duper into it. And then later on when Jason turned up and was wearing like a, um, you know how like, you know, like hot Roman guys wearing skirts and then they kind of have like a metal bar hanging down the front and then like a little pocket for their sword. <laughs> um, I don't know, the, the metal part hanging down over the front center of his skirt was protruding ever so slightly forwards. And this occurred after the initial penis gag. And this teacher just decided that this also was a penis gag. I'm not even certain that it was, but he was into that as well. And I think it's great <laughs> that, that there is still an audience for this type of comedy. Um, bear in mind that this, this was a audience full of children and they were collectively enjoying these jokes less than he was. <laughs> so let that just be a reminder to you that there is an audience for that style of comedy and it may not be the group that you think it is. I definitely left this production um, having maintained my 
gratitude that we have classics like this to play with and to make art out of. And, and certainly it had like, um, certainly, I don't know, emboldened my excitement and yeah, gratitude as well at the fact of like, <laughs> as, as so much within the Australian curriculum that fails <laughs> and the things that get neglected, despite all of those things in there still is something that gets a bunch of school kids dragged to St. Kilda and gets them to experience a classic text reworked by some like terrific artists. Um, and, and then they're made to think about it and talk about it. And I don't know. And hopefully yet yeah, for that to, you kind of whatever impact that has on them, I'm grateful for them having been put through it. <laughs> I suppose from my very you know biased vantage point. Um, hi everybody. Hey, so I went to see Rent. You know Rent, <laughs> Rent that Jonathan Larson musical. It has a bunch of aids in it. Um, it's got Levi Bohem. It has Seasons of Love, which is that song that like five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred minute song, like th that song that you definitely heard a choir like sing at you against your will at some point in the past. Um, I went and saw Wesley do it. Wesley College do it, um, and it was truly incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I I'm not exaggerating when I say it's it was truly spectacular, um, and I guess I'm about to explain to you why, <laughs> because this is a podcast about theater. Um, let's dive in. Where should we even start? Um, I think I'm just gonna jump all around the place, and I I will do my best to help you keep up with it. I think I think you will be able to. It'll be fine. I will try to keep it logical. I'm saying things out loud that I should just be thinking and then, uh, you know, d doing. <laughs> Um, so ignore the last 12 seconds. I was on the phone to my pal Dominic before, so it was raining. I was on the phone to him. Um, he was seeing a show and I was seeing a show. I asked him what show was he, like he was seeing. He was on his way to see Medea, the show that I just talked about. I was at Wesley about to coincide to see Rent. I told him this and he went, Jake, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and I said, what do you mean? And he was like, you just go to a lot of high school theater. And as you've heard me defend to James many a time before, there are many valid reasons to attend high school theater. You should be going to more of it yourself. Um, and 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 this show was, I, I, if, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm so grateful that I saw this show that it is worth ridicule from people even as wise as Dominic. <laughs> um, waiting in the rain. The doors open, we go inside, I sit down. I'm in the front row, stop yelling at me. Of course I'm in the front row and I sit down. I'm ready for rent to, like, to start. But when I told, who did I tell? Was it Dominic? No, I think maybe it was James. Uh, it was somebody that I was like, I'm going to see Rent, it's happening at Wesley. And they, instead of insulting me for going to a high school production of Rent, they were like, a high school's doing Rent? And <laughs> again, as I've, it, it's been Wesley Productions before where I've told you people in the audience say very illuminating, fascinating things, oftentimes during the show. <laughs> Um, but this time it was beforehand and a people, like people, a couple of seats behind me would having this conversation that I, at some point in the past had with, I think James was like, hang on, can a high school even do rent? There's a lot of stuff in rent there, and there is, there's a bunch of stuff in rent. Um, it's like, are they going to do the whole thing? Is it going to be like Aladdin Jr.? Are they going to leave out all the stuff? That I wonder what they leave out of Aladdin when they do Aladdin Jr. What would it be? Cause it's all pretty... I, I'm not going to just say that Aladdin is pretty fine because a bunch of stuff, ha stuff, like stuff happens. Jasmine does get trapped in that hourglass, which is, 
too high on the list of like, you know, when you picture a picture a movie musical and do you have this? And it's like a few sort of like immediate images flash in your mind of like, oh yeah, that's how that film looks and feels. Jasmine in the Hourglass is like top three images from Disney's Aladdin. I wonder if that made the cut in Disney's <laughs> Aladdin Jr. Anyway, so I was going to see, yeah. And then these people were like, what, do, are they able to do all the things that happen in Rent? And this person didn't sound very familiar with Rent. They just knew that it was kind of AIDSy, which it is, which it absolutely is. Um, but yeah, no, honestly, I think I, keeping track of, cause mentally going through it, I was like, I know Rent fairly well. I mostly know it from the movie. Um, but in terms of like things that I was looking at for them to not like to not say or do through in it, I think lyrically, the only things that they didn't say that is in the normal, like score of the musical was like, they didn't say dildos. <laughs> they didn't say dildos in La Vie Bohème, but they said all the other stuff, which is stuff like masturbation and other words, <laughs> you know, torture words. And then during, um, the light my candle duet where, Roger and Mimi meet for the first time. Instead of saying she has the best ass below 14th Street, she says she has the best eyes, which I didn't realize until later on um, that that's a genius substitution <laughs> because later on when he sings his admittedly terrible song about her eyes to stop her from dying, um, it's it almost acts as like a throwback to when she had nice eyes. And it's nice because when she's talking about unless I've mis misunderstood something in the lyrical history of Rent, for her to be saying eyes instead of ass in that scene where she's talking about how her ass gets, like, you know, praise from the people that see her being this, like, stripper dancer person at the job that she has. Instead of talking about everyone thinking that her ass is great, it's people thinking that her eyes are great, but these are presumably the same people that are into her ass. So it's like, for him to be singing about her eyes later on in order to not let Mimi die, it's almost as if he's seen something that maybe other people have seen, but he's seen them in a particular way or something. I don't know. I just thought it was so clever. Whoever made the choice to turn ass into eyes. Ugh. Well done, I thought. Um, but this is just the beginning of the parade of things that I'm going to point out and then shout applause about. Um, where am I? Okay. So <laughs> I had this, again, I'm jumping all over the place. It was like, during, it was Marlo Stevenson's entrance. Let's just get to Marlo Stevenson, which is something that I'm going to keep coming back to and a name that I'm going to keep saying. <laughs> Marlo Stevenson played Mimi uh, and uh, she entered and I was like, hmm, I have full blown seen this woman before. Is she friends with my sister? Have we had some sort of like bizarre run in on the street or something? I was like, that's a face that I know. And that's when I start piecing all these puzzle pieces together. And it's like, oh my God, Jake, you do go to a lot of high school theater. This woman was in Cloud Street. Remember that really long production of Cloud Street that Wesley did? And then I was like, and then flashing back to that audience member being like, oh God, it just keeps going. I was like, oh my God, that's the girl from Cloud Street. And then more things start clicking. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm recognizing a lot of these people from that production of Cloud Street. I, I'm not saying that I raised any of these children. Debatably, I didn't, but <laughs> I recognize these superstars now. Um, but yeah, so that, that's when it finally clicked for me. Like, oh, a lot of this cast was in Cloud Street. That meant something to me. Maybe it means nothing to you, but I'm just letting you know what my journey was like. Um, I'm just gonna dive in now <laughs> with letting you know that this cast was astonishing. I, maybe it's too soon in the game of talking about what this show was to say something like that, but I couldn't. Okay, this I think is, I had this experience that I have not had in such a long time 
seeing any type of theatre. And I'm saying type as in, like, main stage, independent, high school, (laughs) whatever you want to call any of the theatre that you see, however you want to categorise things. Factoring in all the performing arts, not in recent memory have I had this experience that I had while watching this show. And I think it will give you an idea of the level of impressive that it was. Um, so, like, it was, like, this... The, the extent to which I was being impressed and the rate at which I was being impressed was so overwhelming that by the time the Lavibo M scene started being set up in the semi-darkness by, like, the stagehands, as I could see them assembling the table necessary for the Lavibo M musical scene... I had the conscious <laughs> and physical realization that it might overwhelm me. <laughs> because up until this point, and this is still like the first half of the show, and I'm like, by that point, I'd been so blown away repeatedly by what all of these artists working together had accomplished and what these kids kept doing that I was like, if they're all in this scene, which is already an incredible number, which is an, like an energetic great song rousing piece of like oh my god one of the of of course one of the best settings for any musical number being like a bar restaurant situation and you have an ensemble of this magnitude singing one of the best songs in musical theater it was like i truly with no exaggeration had the the words in my mind of like i don't know if i can handle this (laughs) because i was just like this could be the end of me (laughs) um yeah so i'm just gonna like say a bunch of names i guess um, before I do that, I guess I want to bring up the fact that it was double cast in the way of like, they only had, I think three or four performances and all of the roles had, you know, what double casting is. So like Friday, it's one person, Saturday, it's a different actor playing the same role because it's like, there's a bunch of like students at this school and it's great to be able to give them the opportunity to play like both ensemble and principal characters in the same production that they're working on for so long. And so it's bonkers to me to think that I saw a group of people and like, even just to focus on the principal cast, to see a group of people so capable of such incredible performances and to think that there's a second version of someone of presumably equal caliber waiting or like in the ensemble to play that role as well is insane. (laughs) I don't know what Wesley is doing if they have some sort of real rigorous screening process, but it was, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a talented bunch of people. <laughs> um, and I suppose... Before I start listing names and just shouting things at you, I think one of the early moments of me being like, how are they accomplishing this? Like, I kept... Especially by the time the second half rolled around, it was like, this feels unaccomplishable. Like, I cannot... Be- like, it just seems as if... How has a high school got the collective, like, talent and facilities necessary to do a production of Rent with a bunch of kids and have it be this earthquaking. I, <laughs> um, which I guess brings me to, sorry, again, I'm just flumping around. Seeing Rent done by a bunch of kids who are presumably like 17, 18 years old, um, as did the person a couple of rows behind me maybe thought as well. It's like, how are they going to, and I've talked about this a lot on this podcast already, about how are young people going to comprehend the issues of people older than them going through experiences they haven't gone through before. But it's like, in a way that I super duper didn't see coming, like seeing a bunch of like people in their late teens performing the story of Rent, which is one of like, you know, young people struggling 
in a society that isn't supporting them while, you know, dealing with AIDS, dealing with love, dealing with financial pressure, dealing with having to make, make huge life decisions, having to deal with having gigantic passions inside of themselves that they don't have the wisdom necessary to deal with. It was like, why hasn't Rent only ever been performed by 17 year olds? I just, it was like, again, because I'm hyper familiar with the movie version. And beyond that, I think I've seen, I've definitely seen like one other high school production, maybe like eight years ago. And then I don't think I've ever seen a production with like adults doing like, you know, like a proper production of it before. I think I'm just really familiar with, with the, with the movie musical, uh, but it's like, yeah, why isn't it always people going through adolescence? Because it just, watching them do it, it was like, as, as I'll go to in, you know, almost tedious detail, I'm sure. It was like, of course, Rent should be done, even it being the musical of the age that it is. It's like a bunch of young people performing today songs about how the, the world doesn't seem to want or need them. And they're inheriting all of this misery. And they're just looking around and all they're kind of doing is like falling in love and being overwhelmed by it. And then feeling so hopeless, but trying to find hope and hoping that their heart is steering them in the right direction. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, th the world's on fire and everything's falling apart. These kids are about to graduate from high school. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'd love to talk to one of them about that experience. Anyway, that's, that's just me to think about. Uh, what did I say that I was about to go and do? Um, um, you know what, let's just do what what maybe seems like it's not the correct order to do it, but let's start kind of like with the supporting cast, almost because, <laughs> as if I need to provide evidence for you in this essay that I'm suddenly imagining that I'm writing about this production being immaculate. It's like, the supporting cast was so great <laughs> that it was like, like, heading home in the rain, I was thinking about how like so often you see, and not just high school productions, Production, productions generally, and I guess it goes with even just the way that that the theatre is, you know, purported to function by the way that media portrays theatre, which is a whole different topic that I cannot get into. And if I were to get into it, yes, Euphoria would get mentioned. <laughs> but the, the idea that okay, you scrounge together a bunch of people that want to put a show on, and then you grab like the three Rachel Berries that you have, and you put them at the very front, and then everyone else is just like a moderately tone deaf enthusiast, and then you kind of like put them back in the lower lighting and you don't give them much to do. You know, like that being <laughs> to some extent kind of like a theatrical narrative that I think some of us have, I don't know, I'm sure we've all experienced to some extent, you know? And I guess that, that, uh, you know, unconscious assumption maybe that existed in the, the, you know, the far off dusty reaches of my mind just added to how blown away I was by everything because it was like that precipitation was like, so I was sitting there watching this principal like collection of leads on the night that I was seeing it be amazing. And then I was like, okay, great. So as impressive as these people are, great. They found like six or seven really amazing performers in this group of students. And then how sweet it is that all these other people get to be involved and to have like, you know, a normal high school students level of talent. But then it's like, <laughs> but then people like, oh, who? So like Addo Quist comes out who up until this point has been more or less kind of like an ensemble member in this, this like crowd. And then comes out and starts nailing this like, will I lose my dignity? And it's like, oh my God, that voice is beautiful. Like, what are you doing in the ensemble? This is, 
you're remarkable. And then similar moments of when like Lachlan Carroll comes out and he's doing that like that really annoying like Christmas bells are ringing part that 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 collection of homeless people do. And that too is like not only is his voice beautiful, but it's also like th- that being the the like. The line that you hear him sing maybe, uh, I'd say, about 20 times throughout the entire show. But there's something about even the way that he handles... The way he handles the phrasing of the sentence that he's saying is like, this man has been perfectly cast. (laughs) I was just like, hang on. Is everyone in this show really, really, really good? (laughs) And that is part of why I thought Levipo M was going to kill me. (laughs) Um, Let's continue just you know, macheteing through this jungle at random. Getting back to Marlo Stevenson, I am obsessed with her. (laughs) I say this as an adult, talking about a marvelously talented high school student. She's incredible. And I remember her being incredible in Cloud Street. And when she came out as Mimi in that fucking, in that, that Light My Candle song, which is so good, I suggest if you are not familiar with that song, get familiar with that song and perform it for yourself I think it's, and play whichever role you want to, I think it's a fun acting exercise for all of us to be doing in our spare time. Um, But she came out and just proved herself immediately to be just like such an incredible vocalist, a wonderful actor. And then throughout the show, she just kept continuing to be just so impressive. And the show is long. It is the length of an entire musical, but no one gets tired. No one gets bored of it. No one's voice gets bad. It's just, it's, again, they achieved something unaccomplishable with this show. Marlo was so great that I had the thought, even before Interval had happened, of like, if this girl, if she decides that she's gonna release an album, I am buying it at a CD store. If she decides to go, I don't know, if, if she, I don't know, if she wants to do like a Megan Hilty style, like an evening with Marlo, <laughs> where she just stands up and tells stories and then, I don't know, sings Rainbow Connection, I'm going. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, what a, I don't know, a talented, marvellous lady. Um, yeah, who else? Let's just keep dicking around here. Marcus Letter was an incredible Roger. I, I need to, I need to get to, where is, so Dashiell Stevenson played Mark. I don't know how you feel about Mark as a character. Um, I've always found him so irritating. Maybe it's because for some reason I have less patience for Anthony Rapp than most people do. Um, who played him in like when he, when it was on stage and the movie version, I've just never had any time for him <laughs> as a person. I'm sure he's a nice person based again on nothing, but, um, but yeah, but, and that, that, I think that's why it was like especially refreshing and surprising and cool for Dashiell to be, to play Mark, who again, I think on paper, I find irritating, who's kind of like arc throughout the thing is kind of like him being the spectator to the lives of his friends and him documenting the whole thing and having this whole integrity battle with himself in terms of whether or not he should sell out in order to be able to, you know, afford to live or to commit to the art he wants to make, you know? And that in itself, even like hearing me describe that, I'm like, it's like, yeah, that is a relatable struggle. Um, but for some reason, I've just never experienced this character be played in a way that makes me, you know, side with him as vehemently as on paper as I should. But... My God, Dashiell was just, of course, his voice was fantastic and his acting was so damn good. But uh, like inside of all of that, he managed to play Mark without any of the like irritating self-righteousness or like the, the like the cold obnoxiousness or like the, the odd smugness that I so often see 
in the portrayal of that character. Um, and I was just super duper grateful for it because again, you're sitting through this entire show, the one who's kind of the narrator of the entire thing. If it's hard to put up with him, it's hard to put up with the show. Um, so they, <laughs> again, marvelous casting, marvelous work. Um, yeah, it was directed by Marcus Pinnell and Fiona Atkin. And um, they did something amazing. I'm just going to keep reiterating that. Um, I suppose like that, that's, that's, that's linguistic adventure we're going on together. Um, Zara Jacobello played Maureen with like, uh, good God. And it's like, again, I haven't seen this show many times on stage, but knowing it as I do, it's like that goddamn cow jumping over the moon monologue is such like a make or breaking moment of like, and it's kind of like the first time you see Maureen do anything at all. Um, and throughout the process of witnessing that, that that protest performance that she gives, it's like you learn so much about the performer playing her, you know, you learn so much about the character itself, you know, about the kind of what's to come in terms of what the character of Maureen puts you through and puts Joanne through. Um, and it was just like, and it being one of like the earlier moments in the show, I suppose, where you're still kind of like getting your bearings in terms of the ensemble that you're about to see before you any doubt that you could possibly have that you were in good hands with this group of people were just like murdered by Zara because it was like, how is this teenage woman doing this? Uh, it was like, first off, it initiates with like her standing on this protesting stage, just like standing on the stage, but then like in flies this beautiful, like sort of like dirty fabric frame for her to like perform this piece inside of. And then she just delivers this monologue and it's like, if you don't know it, it's like, it's, it's her sort of like telling this like long winding analogy metaphor thing about the, the peril of the capitalist hellscape that she's found herself living in with all of her pals and ends kind of with the audience being this stand in audience for the protest. And uh, it, it ends with her insisting that everyone moo with her. And, and I talked about this a bit when we were talking about beauty and the beast last time of the magic of the, the dual experience of knowing that you're watching a show and then also having like the, the narrative awareness of it being a part of the lives of these, of these school students, I guess, and the audience that you're with in this instance, it wasn't just like a sea of rent fans, but it was also people, largely people who have some relevance to the lives of these people on stage as well. And vice versa, of course. And it's like, there was something, Oh my God. It was like, oh, I, <laughs> um, Something so great about getting to experience an audience moving back and Maureen and knowing that that audience wasn't just an audience, but it was also like these people that gave a fuck about these kids was just, um, I don't know, one of those like unique theatrical experiments that experiments experiences, one of those unique theatrical experiences that I think will stick with me for at least a little while. Um, because it was bonkers. Um, and yeah, and yeah, Zara was so fucking good and it was great because it was like, I don't know, with Maureen being such like a complicated character in terms of, in a basic sense, her likability um, in the, and in the like exciting way that she presses up against the idea of, you know, the, 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 the way that, you know, to sound like a really dull person, the way that women are meant to behave in society, the way that she presses up so firmly against those expectations. Um, makes her always like an interesting character to experience and the way that she can be quite easily villainized, I suppose, or like vilified in the, in the way that the function, uh, the way that the narrative functions, I guess, um, she was afforded a lot of complexity by the way that Zara performed her. 
which is great. And then, of course, like, <laughs> Take Me or Leave Me being one of the best songs in the piece. Um, and her playing opposite Molly Martin, who was playing Joanne. Um, who, and this comes back to a thing that I often find myself complimenting kids about in these productions of like, Molly was so great at somehow playing an adult <laughs> in, with, with such like subtlety and nuance that was just really impressive. And I think it was at most on show during Take Me or Leave Me. And oddly, it was like partly due to the costuming, which, um, yeah, which was done by Jan Barber. Which is a name I recognize. I remember saying, and I feel like maybe she did Cloud Street as well. I don't know. But she dressed Molly in kind of like one of those like fancy kind of like almost like silky blouses. And there was something about the, about the way that it was on Molly and the way that Molly was performing that was like, I don't know how well you know Take Me or Leave Me, but it's like Maureen being like, Joanne, you can't be jealous and mad at me all the time. Like I'm a sexual person and people want me and I you, you have to let me express myself. And Joanne being like, I don't have a problem with that, but like, I'm also a person that also has boundaries and also has demands. You need to cater to them as well. And it's like, I'm like, and it was just, it was really, really wonderful watching these two like powerhouse performers play against each other. And with Joanne having to come in kind of like past the halfway point of this song where you've heard Maureen make all of her great points about being like a modern woman and being a feminist and being sexual. And then Molly then having to take on the hard task of then sort of like replying to that. She accomplished it so marvelously and even though by this point you'd seen Molly be so great, it was like, this is where she really took flight. And it was like, and part of it was supported by this like modest, sweet little adult shirt that she was wearing. And it's like, oh my God, this does feel like a woman who has prioritized order <laughs> and sense and logic in the way that she's built her life. And now she is just like rigorously defending herself to this woman that she loves. And fuck, yeah, I was, oh, I don't know. Again, impressed, again, blown away. Um, Christ. <laughs> um, Mitchell McLaren played Angel in Rent and he, he played Fish in Cloud Street. <laughs> um, yeah, he's really good at playing random nouns. Um, I, I, good God, he's really, really impressive. I, I, I wish I had seen my friend Joel play Angel in Rent when he did it. And I'm so grateful that I got to see Mitchell play it this time. Um, and I'm, uh, he's remarkable. He's remarkable. It's amazing that anyone can play Angel. <laughs> it's a hard role. Uh, and it's, and it's, I don't know, remarkable that he managed to do it as well as he did. And it's, I don't know, he's, I don't know, he's exciting and talented. And I hope to work with him one day, honestly. Um, um, a, a, a doofy test I do. I think it was because of of uh, some uh, unrecallable experience in high school for myself, I think. Um, maybe it was <laughs> as part of my, my Rocker Stedford training. Um, the thing of like, of course, with high schools often having such large ensembles in their musicals and their plays, a good test of, I don't know even, I don't know what it's a test of, but just, I'm certain you do this too, of like looking around and seeing what everyone's up to. Like all the people that you aren't meant to be looking at, but are on stage doing something and seeing what everyone is up to. And this show, <laughs> in just another way that it was tremendous, was the, the fact that everyone was always doing something interesting on stage. 
all of the goddamn time. Um, during the sequence, I forget what was even happening in the sequence. They just started, like, one of the times they sing about Christmas or some such. <laughs> and there was just, like, it felt like everyone in the show was on stage. I think it was maybe just before Maureen's protest song. But it was, like, I had been, like, my seat was positioned just in front of one of the actors that was, like, crouching down, going through, like, this little basket of scarves. <laughs> and that that was the, the whole task that they were accomplishing. They were in this tent city... And they were crouched on the ground. There was a musical number kind of half happening around them. And their thing that they were doing was just sorting through this basket of scarves. But they were doing it with this, like, wonderful, realistic intensity. But they were still hitting all of these, like, random moments where they were supposed to be chiming in with the musical number that was occurring. There was a part where... What was it? So, like, Lachlan Carroll was about to... Unbeknownst to me, was about to come through as a drug dealer and offer drugs to a bunch of, like, drug addicts. And... But before this had happened, I was like, why is that girl over there, like, scratching her? I think it was Luca Allen. I was like, why are you looking so, like, cold and scratchy? Because I'm famously no good at spotting when someone is on drugs, thinking about drugs. I can't spot a drug affected. Like, I, I just can't tell. I just think people are being friendly or itchy or something. But, yeah, someone's like, what, what, is, what is Luca doing over there, wearing that big dirty coat and scratching her arms? And then Lachlan comes through and it's like, oh, she's going through heroin withdrawal. I was like, oh my God, the layers that exist in this little universe we're witnessing. I know I know that this is just me being blown away by functional theater, but, but again, this show is life-changing. So I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> um, so Alfredo Chang Gonzalez played Collins. Um, and it was one of the, <laughs> one of the best performances I've seen in so long. <laughs> um, Jesus. Because, like, his voice, he has this tremendous range. It's surprisingly deep. And Collins is a really hard role to sing. <laughs> and it's so emotionally taxing. And the way that this young man handled it all how did I pronounce that? Handled it all was like moving in like a, of course, in a narrative sense, in the way that he achieved some really devastating things. But then on top of that, to also know and see, and again, it's that, that like dual, you know, high school production experience that you have as an audience member, I guess. I don't mean to keep bringing it up, but the, the, the knowledge that he can be so young and so capable of expressing these things on top of having such a tremendous artistic capacity. Um, it was just like such a, his, his presence in the piece was like, like it had such gravity to it. It was like, he, when he comes out and let's first dwell briefly on him and the way that he and Mitchell McLaren play. So like Collins and Angel, of course, being, people that sort of like fall like quickly and beautifully in love with each other. And on the tale of a couple of weeks back talking about De La Salle's production of Almost Maine and the way that they handled the kissing there, I think that certainly sprung to mind when I was watching like the tenderness that these two young actors were capable of. Um, from memory, like with very little, if any, kissing. <clears throat> um, Sorry, I keep bringing up kissing as if it's like a whole separate subject we needed to keep delving into. It just came to mind because we keep talking about it. Um, but the again, these young people conveying such honest, loving tenderness 
and telling a love story, which again, something that when I was that age, I don't know how capable I would have been able to even engage with a story like that. But, and, and, you know, even, and to the extent that these, these young people do, because of course you've got that, that love story to deal with. You've got like Roger and Mimi as well. You've got Joanne and, and Maureen. Um, and it was all done with such, it almost comes back to that remark that the person was making at the start. It's like, can they do rent? Is that allowed? And it's like, you absolutely can if you're going to do it this tastefully, but honestly, and it's like, if what you want to convey is love, there's really no physical demand on the way that you're going to convey that. And if you have performers and artists working together in a smart enough way, and if they're all talented enough, um, you can do it with a potent simplicity that all of these people working together manage to accomplish. Um, so I didn't expect to be talking about <laughs> the expression of love, but that's where we've ended up, I suppose. Um, but yeah, Alfredo Chen Gonzalez was mind-blowing. He came out after Angel dies, um, which even like, as a moment itself, like watching the final moments of Mitchell experiencing Angel's life alongside Marlo Stevenson singing I Die Without You. <laughs> was this like, again, it's another, and they shouldn't, it's so hard to find a show that leaves you with more than one thing that you know that you will be living with in your like heart and mind for very long. But it's like, this is one of them as well of like watching her sing, I die without you. It was the first time that that song hit me that way. Um, just the thought of the loneliness of death as a process, as like one layer of the thing, then sitting that inside of like the AIDS epidemic and then the thought of losing someone that you love and wanting to do everything with them, especially when they need you and knowing that you can't die with them and see them through to whatever is waiting on the other side. Like the fact that all of that was conveyed so beautifully by all these performances working in symphony, it was like, ugh. Jesus. Yeah, sorry. That was just, it was devastating. And so, <laughs> so that happened. And then, so then of course, Angel dies. And then, and then, and then Alfredo comes out to deliver sort of like after, after what is like very, like the very sparing spoken words in the show, um, or the, like the little grabs of eulogy that you get from the other characters. And then Collins comes out, Alfredo comes out to deliver like the I'll cover you reprise. And he's like already on the brink of tears. And then it like the song slowly starts. And then he starts singing it with his like incredible voice and this low register that he has and he's crying and he's feeling all these things. And it's like part of what was especially incredible about it was like, not just his handle on his emotions, but it was like, and it's like, of course a credit to him. And it's like, it's one of those things that you can really spot in an amazing performer and an amazing singer, especially of like the, the quality of sound, but even like the way that the sound occupies their body and the way that I find especially, and it was really, really present in this performance and the delivery of this song of like the, the sound of his breath and the sound of the sounds between the words. It was like the, the, the like the heartbreak was so, oh. <laughs> sorry, I'm just making sounds <laughs> because I, 
God, it was like, yeah, it was just crazy beautiful. And I wish you could have been there to see it because <laughs> it was something else. Um, I'm going to start talking. I'm going to stop talking about this soon because I know that I've, I've done a lot of it. <laughs> um, but I just want to flag as well that in terms of if we're just talking about songs, um, the I Should Tell You duet that they, that, between Roger and Mimi, um, I think was another moment that exemplified the fantasticness of the choice of, you know, teenagers singing, of teenagers performing this musical. Um, because the song had never hit me the way that it hit me when these two were performing it. Um, yeah, when Marcus and Marlo were, were singing this song about like the, the, the things you need to divulge or at least feel you need to divulge before a person can really get to know you. Um, and the trepidation surrounding the trepidation that some people feel. And I feel like most of us will feel at some point, um, when you feel yourself beginning to love somebody or you feel yourself even beginning to want to let somebody know you well enough to maybe love you also, you know, the, <laughs> those beginning parts of this, of this song that, I rarely find myself in the mood to listen to the, the rendition that the two of them accomplished. Um, that this is the time that the song hit me the hardest, I guess, and um, meant the most, I suppose. Um, yeah. So, I'm sorry if you were not in the mood to just hear me gush about a show. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was super duper mind blowing. If you see me in person and you have any feelings about rent or this show, or my discussion about this show, know that I will always be ready to talk about this production <laughs> because, um, yeah, because it was unbelievable. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, 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 that's, I've said enough. I'm going to stop saying things now, but, um, it was, yeah, it was a super duper pleasure. Uh, and that's, that's it. Hey, <laughs> thank you so much for, coming this far with me. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. I, I always have such a weird feeling about these, like, just me episodes. <laughs> so, so, um, so know that. I feel like suddenly I, it's important for me to let you know that. I don't know why. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, grateful that you gave this much of your time to me. That's very, very generous of you, so it's appreciated. Uh, if you are doing anything theatrical that you'd like us to come along to and talk about, give us tickets to it, and we will attend, and then we will talk about your art um, very, very happily. Um, uh, we are on Instagram at Praise Dionysus. We have an email address. It is praisedionysus at gmail.com. Uh, uh, yeah. And just a reminder um, that I may already disagree with everything that I just said. And friends don't let friends become theatre critics. Um, it's been a true pleasure. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you again for your patience. Uh, you, you sweet angel. Angel. I will keep talking about rent if you let me. <laughs> um, have a wonderful whatever amount of time is coming up for you. I will stop talking now. I don't know why I've suddenly gotten into this mood of just avalanching words at you. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop now.